0: Welcome to Founders Uncut, the podcast that goes beyond the romanticized founder journey to discover the moments of vulnerability and doubt that even the most successful founders face. I'm Maria Palma, General Partner at Kindred Capital. Here with me today is Tom Blomfield, founder and former CEO of Monzo and co-founder of GoCardLess. Today, he is a prolific angel investor and a visiting partner for YC. If you think his journey was easy, I assure you it wasn't. The startup journey is never the straightforward easy path it appears to be from the outside. So let's dig a little deeper and uncover the real story on Founders Uncut. From 2015 to 2020, Tom grew Monzo from zero to over 2,000 employees and was one of the youngest CEOs of a UK-regulated bank ever. He raised over $500 million on that journey, and their product improved banking for over 5 million users. From the outside, it probably seems that Tom was living the founder dream life. But the reality was, toward the end of Tom's time at Monzo, the emotional journey of being a founder was taking its toll. He was under a lot of pressure with many sleepless nights and was not sure he wanted to continue the journey.
1: Yeah, so this was probably the last year or two at Monzo. Um, and I definitely, like, struggled with sort of anxiety um, throughout the sort of my time at Monzo, probably. Sort of, like, um, lost sleep here and there. But towards the last year or two, that, like, sleep loss became more and more recurrent. Like, I'd either struggle to get sleep or wake up at sort of four in the morning and not be able to get back to sleep and sort of have these kind of, um, I re- uh, read the chimp paradox recently, sort of have these, you know, like, the monkey brain thoughts, like, almost irrational, like, worries mm-hmm. going through your head. That In the cold light of day, you look at it, you sort of think about the problem, going like, yes, it's a problem. I think I can fix it. Like, put it to one side. But that, at night, that kind of conscious part of your brain that controls it is sort of Asleep and the kind of subconscious part goes wild and, you know, starts telling you all, everything bad's going to happen. Um, and as the pressure's added up, whether that's regulation or press or customers come to the office with acid or you know, fundraising problems or then COVID hit. And we mm-hmm. very sadly had to lay off um, a, a few hundred of our, our staff. Um,
0: Didn't someone also pull a hundred million term sheet on you or something, Dave? Yep,
1: yep, yep, yep. That happened. So COVID hit and, yeah, about a hundred million pound of funding that should have come in on Monday got pulled the Friday before because, of, because of London went into lockdown. So all of those things, like, on their own, they're, like, pretty bad. But combined, you know, like, plus I have security because people are threatening to come to my house and murder me. It's like the combination of all of those things is, like, this is quite stressful now. Yeah. And um, for me, what that felt like basically was um, an inability to, like, engage with the next problem that came along because like, my, emotions, my emotional reserves were at zero. They'd been like, battered from all sides, and I was just, like, doing my best to keep my head above the water, and there was no one to unload the weight onto. Like, all of my senior team were, were taking a ton of pressure at the same time and had their own struggles too. Um, and so I was just like, I, you know, my head was like, dipping below the water, and so another problem comes along, however minor it is, mm. and I felt like I just don't have the emotional capacity to deal with this problem, because like, it's gonna push me underwater. And so I'm just going to put it off.
2: Mm.
1: And it's a weird feeling because it's not very logical. And I've, I know this because I've had it, I had it a, sort of a year or two earlier in the middle of a fundraising round. Mm. I found fundraising very, very stressful. Like It is a life or death moment for the company normally. like You don't raise the money, you, you're going to go bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, and so thing, you know, HR issues came up during this fundraising process, which was like, I just, I just don't want to deal with this. And it's, what's weird is the funding gets signed and the money gets wired, hits the bank account, and then literally the next day you look at the problem and go, oh, the, the solution is so easy, like so obvious, just like do this, this, and this, gone. It's like, how is that any different from 48 hours ago? Like nothing, like my brain hasn't changed in a way, but I yeah. suddenly have like additional like emotional capacity to engage with this problem and deal with it. And it's so strange how, like, just unloading a little bit of weight somewhere else can enable you to then take a decision. So burnout for me, basically, I don't love the the phrase burnout, but, like, that state of mind was, like, I just have no additional capacity for for more emotional stress, and so I'm just going to, like, ignore everything.
0: Why don't you like the phrase burnout? Um,
1: I don't know. It's fine. Like, people can call it whatever they want, really. Um, It's...
0: It's not really like it. yeah. It's, it's also kind of seems to be one thing, and it, you know, I guess your emotional capacity and your reserves change a lot over time. So, assuming yeah. it's one state is probably.
1: And I don't think it's like a binary. Like you're burnt out, you're not burnt out. Or like, I, you know, there. Were, I felt a bunch of things. I definitely felt anxious. Like I bordered on depression probably at times. Like I didn't sleep well. Um, but it's you know people are like oh yeah I burnt out and then I had a, a year off and then I wasn't burnt out. It's like okay cool. Like if that's yeah. if that's how it felt to you, awesome. Like. Um, it felt different to me and that's so it just didn't feel like a useful phrase for me mm-hmm. but um yeah.
0: do you did you have places to get like kind of re, refueling for yourself right it's really hard i think to be like the cheerleader for the whole company and have the weight of everything on your shoulders and be fundraising and be dealing with death threats and all that i mean honestly i can't even imagine but can you like did you have any places to go for like personal energy refueling
1: <laughs> not a lot um, No, Um, I mean, my problem was that I couldn't switch the work off. So I actually didn't work that hard. I don't think you have to work 100 hours a week to build a successful company. I certainly didn't. I mean, there may have been one or two weeks in six years I worked 100 hours, but I worked normal, you know, I worked 40, 50, 55 hours max, like not a crazy amount of time. Um, and I took holidays, uh, every month, like, we, we forced people to take their holiday allowance, um, myself included. Um, I played sports, I took up pottery, which I talked a lot about. Um, my problem was I could just never switch off, that even when I was on holiday, I was always thinking about um, work. Uh, it's a funny story, this was actually at GoCardless, which was, you know, the pressure there was much, much lower. But even there, after two years, I was like, I need a break, and my phone is like my connection to work, and so I'm going to leave my phone at home. I'm, going to, I'm literally gonna to go to Indonesia with no phone. Like, see you later. But like as, a, as a backup, I, bas- I went to one person in the company, I think, and said, look, if something really, really, really bad happens, here's like my housemate's number who's coming with me, so really, yeah. if like you really need me, there it is. On the taxi to the airport, my housemate's phone rings, and they're like, can we speak to Tom? <laughs>
0: Like, why did I give that to like someone?
1: The first massive fraud attack, basically, at Carter. Oh, Super wow. early on, they're like, you know, yeah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And it turned out fine, but for some reason, someone thought it was reasonable to call me, like, 45 minutes into my no-phone holiday. So, anyway.
0: Did not- you end up getting to take a no-phone holiday at the end, or no?
1: Yeah, we, we still went to the airport. It was fine, <laughs> yeah. so well, the office dealt with it. Um, <laughs> but, yes, my, pro- like, my problem was headspace, not, like, time or physical mm-hmm. location. Mm-hmm. I managed to get away physically. I took time off but I couldn't get the headspace.
0: And do you think it's possible to scale that quickly and get the headspace? Do you think there's a different way to do it, if you've seen other founders do it, or do you think it's just too challenging when you're scaling that fast? I mean, sort of empirically, people have done it.
1: So um, I think everyone has a different sort of personality. My co-founder, Paul, um, is much more experienced than me, is a little bit older than me. I um, went through the 2008-2009 financial crisis, he, he joined Northern Rock as the head of mortgage credit about <laughs> two months before they discovered they'd made a bunch of really bad yeah. mortgages and, and went through the rescue of Northern Rock as well. Um, and So I think he sort of had more perspective, you know, he'd been through ups and downs and, and temperamentally was much more balanced as well. So he's a really good sort of mentor for me, he was someone I went to, you know, when I was really high he'd, you know, he'd pull me down a bit, when I was really low he'd kind of pull me up, he, he kind of equalised. So yes, I do think temperamentally people are different and empirically other founders have faced a lot more stress and scaled through that, so yeah, I I think everyone's different. For me, I I do think like are there things I could have done differently that would have enabled me to scale through that? Um, And the thing I come back to, I think, is paying high salaries and bringing in um, uh, senior talent earlier.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you think if you had done that, um, you might still be running the company?
1: Uh, yes, maybe. I'm not sure I'd be, I think, but I, yeah, I'm not sure I'd be sort of 10 out of 10 happy. I think I'd have been surviving and running the mm-hmm. company. Honestly, I am I am dramatically happier now than I was two years ago. I'm incredibly proud of of what we built and the team there who are running it They're doing a fabulous job. I think it'll be a very, very successful company. But I was not fabulously happy, um, especially towards the end.
0: Yeah. Back us up for a second. On the Monzo journey, I think that it's hard. I've certainly never been a CEO of a company scaling that quickly, and I think many people will have not had that experience. Like, what does the day-to-day look like? Can you tell us some of the, like, pressures or tough challenges or tough moments? Like, just give us some insights, maybe some specific examples of, like, what are the challenges, what does it look like as a CEO?
1: It really varies according to the stage. And that's one of the exciting and challenging things, that you're a CEO of a 20-person company versus a 200 versus almost 2,000 when I left. It just really, really varies. And so, in the early days, it was—I think we got our banking license when I was 29 or 30 or something. Mm-hmm. Probably the, the youngest CEO of a UK bank, at least in the last hundred years. And so, trying to convince very senior regulators that I was competent to run a bank was um, uh, an interesting conundrum. Um, and then, as we got as we got big, it was the pressures of. Um, Dealing with a massive organization, two thousand people a lot of internal politics, mm-hmm. a lot of people from different backgrounds and industries who uh, and so there 's not sort of a uniform culture, and so dealing with that was was tricky. The press obviously um, felt like it really sort of the attitude switched which was um, which was tough and then out of whatever it was at the time three four million users mm-hmm. um, the vast vast majority were lovely human beings, but if you have one in a million who's a psychopath,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, that's still like three or four psychopaths you've got to deal with. Yeah. Um, and so there are times when we'd have security firms. There'd be, you know, people threatening to bring weapons or acid to the office. Like, there were Facebook groups who were sharing my home address, things like that. That would just, um, uh, each one on their own, I think, uh, would be um, tough, but, but probably manageable. They'd sort of mount up and mount, mount up and mount up. And yeah, by the end, I've spoken about this before. It's by the end, like the culmination of all of those things was more than I could handle at the time.
0: Yeah. And you, you said you slept with a red phone by your bed. Can you explain what that is and why and <laughs> oh what God. kind of calls someone gets on the red phone?
1: Um, a red phone sounds way more glamorous than it was. It's like, I think, I'm not sure if we planned it or not. It was basically like a pink Nokia, okay. like those old 3310s. So why did this happen? So um, when a bank, when any company really like, has a catastrophic problem, like Facebook the other day, at some point, like, the CEO gets a phone call, right? Like, at some point, it's a big enough problem that the CEO gets woken up in order to talk to the board or investors or regulators or whatever it is, or the press, perhaps. And so, luckily, Monzo got way, way, way more reliable, but there were times I needed to be woken up. And as part of, like, trying to, like, detach from work... I didn't sleep with my phone in my bedroom because it would buzz and I'd be, I'd be tempted. To, I think it's a great tip for everyone, by the way, mm-hmm. like charge your phone outside of your bedroom. So you, it's not the last thing you look at at night. It's not the first thing in the morning. So I would charge it outside of my bedroom. The problem, therefore, became like, how do I get woken up if something catastrophic happens? And the answer is a pink Nokia 3310, uh, which like only not even a person has the number. It was like plugged into the paging system we use so okay. that if something catastrophic went wrong, like that phone would ring and I'd get like okay. a, a computer voice saying, you know, there's an incident, you need to log on, blah, 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 blah.
0: Do you have like an aversion for Nokia phones now?
1: Kind of, yeah. And <laughs> like that one ringtone as well, you know, it, it didn't ring that much, but it um, it did ring at times and it was, that was like a sinking feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was pretty terrible.
0: So you talked about the kind of scaling, right? Different to run a 200 person organization than a 2,000 person. Yeah. Um, and I think we have a shared... Philosophy that values are not what you put on the wall of your company I think a lot of founders talk about values and they set values and they set them with their early team But then implementing those values and making sure the behaviors of the company actually align with those values is actually much more challenging Can you give some examples of maybe where you encouraged or discouraged certain behaviors? Aligned with your values um, to try to enable those values across a huge organization. Yeah, um
1: yeah, and I think basically values and culture is like the way people behave when you're not in the room. Like the way they make decisions when there's no one watching them. Um, and so for us, some really important things were um, transparency and customer centricity. So, and everyone says customer centricity, right? Let's, so let's start with transparency because I think it's a little bit less common.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So from the very start, we made everything, of that, really everything uh, not salaries. That was one thing we debated on and off, and we never made those pu- internally public. But things like board meetings, uh, all the agenda, all the minutes. Um, whenever we were having conversations with VCs about raising money, we would, we'd make that transparent internally. Like, I mm-hmm. would stand up in front of the company and tell them how the conversations were going. Occasionally, we would invite VCs into our all-hands meetings, and they'd sort of sit quietly at the back. And we'd announce like, to the company that we were in talks with VCs, and these VCs are like, you know, what the yeah. hell are you doing? Like, yeah. Why are you telling yeah. me like, this is going to leak? And it didn't. For five years, we were able to basically give the entire company all the details of prospective funding rounds, like mm-hmm. term sheets, everything. And for the first five years or so, nothing leaked, and it was amazing. I'm mean, Again, five years in, you're 2,000 people. Yep. One in 2,000 people decide it's, it's cool to start leaking to tech, TechCrunch, yep. and sadly that kills, kills transparency. But um, certainly for the first five years, it was an, an amazing kind of open culture where really everyone could get access to everything.
0: Yeah. That's amazing. I feel like it makes it a good place to work.
1: Yeah, but I mean there were downsides which we didn't expect. But it okay. becomes a little bit like um, drinking from a, like a fire hose. Mm. There's just so, you know, so much information being created every day that if you are, if you feel like it's your job to uh, uh, absorb it all, like that's a full-time job in its own. Mm-hmm. And so you, you sort of need two things. One is as a like a, a member of the company as an employee like to trust that you are being like I'll go the other way around I think you've got to package up the the most relevant information as a leader and say like these are the things you really really need to know mm-hmm. and then as an employee you need to kind of trust that that is the stuff like you can if you want trawl through all the board minutes and like there were people who do that and like if you find something that isn't like being surfaced like sure that's a breach of trust but it just doesn't happen that much and yeah. so you kind of have to like do, you know, focus on your job and like trust that you're being given the right information at some point. Um, with that backstop of like all the, all the information is transparent if you want to go and check.
0: Yeah. And what about customer centricity you mentioned? So um, there's a lot of ways where if you have positive examples of customer success managers doing a great job, you can say, look at, look at how great this is. But what if you get the negative, right? If somebody doesn't behave in the, wa- the way you want them to, how do you deal with that? Yeah,
1: I mean, we had both. We had um, customer service agents who with, you know, after going through the proper checks and whatever, took um, Monzo spare Monzo cards to Glastonbury, so when customers lost their card, they were able to like get in touch and go and meet up and give them a replacement card at a festival, which I think was really cool. But conversely, we had you know we had one example of a customer service agent who, um, for whatever reason, and like despite a lot of training, decided it would be appropriate to basically start making disparaging m- remarks about customers and like c- calling people over and. and um, sort of sharing information, inter- not externally, but internally with other customer service agents in a way that, like, was not appropriate and was being, like, pretty disrespectful and rude to customers. It was not It was never leaked outside the company. But even that was just, like, so obviously wrong that, um, I mean, that person was was dismissed. Mm-hmm. And it was just, like, so egregious. It may sound minor, but it, I just found it so egregious that the next day I got up, um, and with our COO as well, actually, talked about, like... Like in quite an emotional way about how like this was just such a a deep violation of like our values and the trust we placed in them. And like disrespecting customers in that way is just just so alien to us that I just couldn't even believe it happened. Um, and by the way, we fired this person um, and just you know take it as a lesson. And you um, said
0: this this was the whole company that yeah, you were talking to. Yeah,
1: I mean we did we did a whole company all hands every week. Yeah. Um, so this was a particularly bad example that, it, and it's tricky. Like people get. I think there's a broader topic of like how, we talked about this the, uh, uh, previously, how when someone's not performing and you sort of let them go, you, you sort of want to um, respect that person as an in- individual and not damage their career chances, but also sort of let other people know that like this wasn't a, like the performance we expect. Mm-hmm. But as long as it's not egregiously bad behavior, you don't want to humiliate that person in public. For sure. But at the point where it is egregious behavior, it's yep. sort of like, I don't know what the right metaphor is, but like, make an example of, so like, this is just so bad, it will not be tolerated.
0: Yeah, the funny thing, too, about that type of situation is the other people were seeing this, right? So, like, in some ways, if you don't address it, the rest of the employees who are exhibiting the behavior you want are like, why isn't this being dealt with, and why is this being addressed? Like, it's not oh, like you're yeah. the only one seeing this, so. Um, you mentioned about kind of being emotional when you were talking to the, the company there. You know, how do you think about kind of showing emotions and vulnerability and leadership? I think some people are a bit nervous to do that.
1: Yeah, I think... That um showing vulnerability is like the the quickest way to establish relationships with human beings, basically um, to show that you are human and you have um, that you're not like robotic you 're not perfect to show to show your screw ups and to show just like to show the emotion um, and yeah I think it because you're tempted to put especially founders on pedestals and think you know perhaps founders put themselves on pedestals sometimes and think they're kind of superhuman and they're clearly not and they're clearly making mistakes. So I think showing that vulnerability allows people to establish a much more mm-hmm. human connection mm-hmm. and to, you know, if you if you are emotional about something, to show that emotion in a way that is that is authentic to you and, and human and relatable because I think it, it inspires this kind of followership in a way. Um, so there were times when I'd, like, I don't know, there were times I would, like, not like openly weep, I guess that is not the right phrase, but certainly sort of, there are subjects that even say I can't really talk about without choking up Mm -hmm. and my eyes sort of, you know, get a bit watery and I'm like, I'm just going to have to pause for a second. And people sort of like, it's a weird feeling because I know if I keep going, I'm going to basically burst into tears Mm -hmm. and that is not a nice feeling. Mm -hmm. But also when people see that, it's like, oh shit, like this is real, this is actually human, like there's something happening there.
0: Yeah, you're being genuine. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's really good advice and I wish... A lot of more leaders would be doing that than then probably they are, honestly. Um, as you talk about the leadership, and you have this philosophy that leadership is different than management. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Um,
1: <laughs> maybe I'm just trying to make my own excuse for being a bad manager. Um, I think they are different, and I think you do want both. But if you could only have one in your founder, I think you want leadership and not great management. Um, but you want both, right? You really, you do want both.
0: And the company probably needs both,
1: right? Yeah, for sure. And, and <laughs> perhaps you can find them in different people. So for me, I think leadership is about setting a direction and a vision and a mission, a set of values, and like being an example um, and inspiring people um, to do things they, they never thought were possible. And that, for me, is leadership. Management, I think, is much more about... And it, leadership is often a sort of one-to-many relationship. Um, and there are loads and loads of different styles of leadership. It doesn't always have to be chess beating, sort of charging mm-hmm. from the front. But but I think it is about um, setting a vision and a mission and inspiring people. Management, I think, is incredibly valuable as well. But for me, it's much more of a sort of one-to-one relationship. It's about um, mentoring or coaching people, d- sort of helping them figure out the answer... Um, providing sort of career guidance, um, more pastoral care, making sure like, as a human being, they're well taken care of mm-hmm. and they're sort of happy and productive and have the tools they need and the training they need. Um, and that is a, an amazing, amazing skill. And there are, i work with um, people at Monzo who were great managers um, and who didn't feel sort of, that they were yet great leaders. So I, I think you can have one or the other and I think you can work on, yeah. on both. So I certainly, I, took, I did a lot of training to work on my management.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, do you think would you consider yourself a good leader or a good manager? Or
1: I started out as a poor manager. I think I'm at like mediocre manager now. I've I've improved. I'm not the best, um, but like smoothing off those like um, sharper edges, I think is important. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm a better leader than I am a manager for sure. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm a great leader yet, but um, but I think I found that I'm able to stand up in front of a thousand people and talk in a way that. Energize and kind of inspires, I think.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's, that's great. And I think you need that for an organization. I, I like also this kind of one to one versus one to many. I think it is important in some ways to separate those two because they are slightly different in skill sets. Um, you kind of have talked publicly about you wish you brought on a senior leadership team more earlier in the journey, but also you are scaling faster than a lot of companies scale. Like, when is it too early to bring on a really great senior leadership team? And when should you, like, when was it too late?
1: Yeah. Um that, it's, a, it's a great question, and um, we were talking last week about this, and it was, it's really interesting because I, sort of, I said a bunch of stuff like when you're scaling really fast, like, um, you, you sort of realize you've got a gap, and that by the time you filled that gap, you've scaled way beyond the capability of the person you brought in to fill the gap, and it's sort of um, this perpetual catching up, and so you sort of have to hire ahead. But the crucial like, caveat was at the start, which is like when you are scaling and when you have product market fit. Mm-hmm. And when, in this kind of hyper growth phase. You know, when you're going from a million customers to four million customers mm-hmm. in one year. That's, that's the kind of scaling I mean. Then you need to like think a year or two ahead and try and like get two leagues up of, of sort of caliber rather than just like, you know, one step ahead. When you are 15 people or something mm-hmm. and you've just raised your seed round and maybe have product market fit, maybe you don't, like absolutely do not hire senior leadership. It's like the worst <laughs> mistake you can possibly make. Okay. So that's the kind of the caveat, really. You should just, at the earliest stage, I would just go and hire the absolute smartest, most productive people you have met, either from like college or school or uh, your first workplace or whatever it is. Just like hands-on people who will get stuff done um, because that's all that really matters. Um, Uh, And sort of delay the sort of senior leadership, C-level titles until you're maybe 150 people.
0: Got it. Um, How do you know when you're scaling? Because there's examples like Tristan, um, who was a customer success manager and then became your VP of marketing, like who really scaled with you and developed with you on the journey. And there's probably people who weren't growing at the rate that the company needed at the time. Like how do you know who is growing with you internally? Like what does that look like? How do you know they're the right talent? And then versus bringing in people externally.
1: um, With someone like... Tristan or there are other examples like uh, Natasha who joined very, very early and was um, ended up running financial crime for us. Um, a bunch of other people sort of in, in that mold. Uh, Dimitri is another one. Um, Hugo in design. Um, they start out as individual contributors basically and they do a really, really good job. And then you sort of give them a bigger challenge and they come back a week, a month later and say, I did that thing and it, turned out well and by the way I found, I found all these other problems along the way and don't worry about them I fixed them too and that's sort of like taking on additional work without coming and saying this is my job or like it's not my job I'm not going to do it just sort of everything they touch kind of just goes better than if they hadn't been there
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you give them more and more responsibility and for a lot of them it's like then taking that leap from individual contributor to kind of to manager basically to leader mm-hmm. and then how they then sort of delegate and work through others and that's for, for all four of those people, that like took some time, but they all manage it in a really great way. Because there's, all, there's always more work than there are people in a startup, almost by definition. At some point, you give them too much work and you can see them kind of, their head is like dipping beneath mm-hmm. the water. And you've got to take a little bit of weight off, actually, to allow them just to kind of surface to an, another three or six months to kind of develop into their role. And then you can load a bit more. And that, again, that happened with all of them, that you would... They'd grow a really, really big team and maybe just be a little bit underwater. So helping them take a little bit of weight off for a moment, I think is really, really valuable. So that's a kind of the success case. And at least three of those four are running their own companies now. Um, Dimitri hopefully is still very happy at Monzo. Stay at Monzo, Dimitri. Um, uh, So that's a success case. And the the kind of failure case is not necessarily that they... these, These aren't like stupid people. These aren't incapable people. These are probably like people whose skills at that time weren't suited to what Monzo needed. Mm-hmm. I mean, some were, some were incapable, right? Like the small mi- minority, like let's be clear, there were some incapable people, but the vast majority were, were absolutely well-meaning, were really smart, worked really, really hard and just weren't like the fit for what we needed right then. And the problem, the ways you, you identify that as a sort of founder CEO is you sort of give them a problem and like a month later they come back to you with like, you know, here's a framework, here's how I'm going to tackle the problem. It's like, I just wanted you to just solve it. And like, I've got I've got 10 other problems yeah. once you solve that one. Or like, they come back with a bunch of excuses. Like, oh, the problem is actually much, much harder than I thought and I'm going to need way more budget. Or it's like, and just six months later, mm-hmm. you're still having the same conversation kind of in a loop um, versus the you touch a thing and it just, you know, it just mm-hmm. works. Like, an example with Tristan was um, we'd grown to about, a million and a half customers, we got to a million with n- with no ad budget, like really zero ad spend. Um, and we were about a million and a half, we were thinking, how can we accelerate growth? And we, we sort of, at the start of the year, looked at our, we'd raised a bunch of money, we looked at our budget, it's like, we have some budget for TV now. So I sort of, I had a meeting with Tristan and said, Tristan, I'd like to um, do some TV. I think we can double our user base, I'd like to spend, like the budget's roughly five to 10 million. And he just sort of, about it for about 10 seconds went, okay, great. I <laughs> just like, walked out. <laughs> and he went and hired like a bunch of people who'd run um, uh, marketing at King.com, like Candy Crush TV ads, um, Like hired a, a production agency. Like This guy had never run any marketing, let alone a TV <laughs> campaign before. That, that campaign like more than doubled our user base that mm-hmm. year, won a ton of marketing awards, spent less than the budget. It's so, like, you just sort of... You know, that's what I mean. Like, you, you give them a problem, they sort of go, okay, yeah, I'll figure it out. And it then comes out better than you expected. Yeah. So that's, and that happened with Natasha, it happened with, with Hugo, and, and a ton of others at Monceau. Invaluable.
0: Invaluable yeah. people to have on the team. Yeah. What about external hires? Like, I'll use your analogy. Can you get a Ronaldo to come play at the National League um, if you're not at the right, and can you afford them, right?
1: Um, we hired a bunch of really, really great external people, um, especially towards the later years um, when we had a, couple of things going for us we had a much much bigger brand we had a massive user base and we were able to pay much higher total compensation both cash and equity but um i think Mon- i don't think i'm flattering myself to say monzo is now in the like the premier league of startups in the mm-hmm. uk i think it's it's one of the top and i am very proud of it but five years ago that was not true mm-hmm. you know we were in the third division and we were struggling to make promotion to the second division you go and try and hire like a Ronaldo or whoever, and it's like they're just not interested. Yeah. Um and so you you kind of have to get the people to get you the next stage and the next stage. And then you hit the premiership and then you, you can go and try to hire. Even Leicester City did incredibly well without hiring superstars. But um too much football analogies probably. <laughs> but um so again, this this advice is stage agnostic yeah. basic, or rather stage dependent.
0: And is there a price point? Like I think There are some founders who feel like, you know, you don't want to pay execs a certain salary because it's kind of a startup, but then at some point you hit a scale where people are very expensive and talent prices are rising at the moment.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. This is absolute advice. You give the advice and someone will misinterpret it because they're at the wrong stage. At the the earliest stage, I'm talking like five, ten, fifteen people, I would keep salaries as low as you can to allow people to like feed their families and pay their mortgages and like survive. But they're not going on fancy holidays. Like, we capped, in the early days of GoCardless, I think we capped our founder salaries at £40,000 a year. Uh, this was 2011 or something. And they crept up a little bit, but really not a lot beyond that. And at Monzo, again, I think we started at £60,000 a year or £80,000 a year, which, uh, compared to national salaries, mm-hmm. is much higher than average. Compared to people running a small bank, mm-hmm. is dramatically lower than, mm-hmm. than average. Um, And it constrained us in the people we could hire. So the salaries crept up and crept up. And by the end, um, they were a lot higher than they started at. But even then, we were hiring great people from, our CEO came from um, Visa. Our COO came from American Express. Mike, our chief uh, product officer, he was at Deliveroo and Facebook before that. these people were still taking 70% reductions in their cash compensation to come and work with us. And they've been paying very like, salaries that I couldn't possibly imagine paying yeah. a year or two earlier, and still they are taking 70% cash reductions, with you know, a bunch of equity upside, of course. Um, but my problem was that I uh, couldn't, my problem was I didn't pay enough early enough, mm. basically. Once we had the funding, I was probably a little too tight on the purse strings, and that stopped us getting the, the sort of the talent we really, really needed early enough, probably.
0: One thing you've said about fundraising that I think often gets missed is like, you kind of self-select VCs who believe in the way you run the company and believe in you and have conviction, which is great. Yeah. Um, and I think that's an important match to make. But then as you scale, kind of like what, what gets you here doesn't get you there. Like, yeah. You might need kind of descending voices in the room. How do you find those voices and make sure they're on the table as well?
1: I don't know, and I didn't manage to. Um, and so we, you know, we grew really fast and we, we, we grew really fast, and we had um, okay revenue, and we knew we needed to work more on revenue per user. But the, as you say, like the VCs who invested were really impressed with our growth and sort of happy with the, the lower revenue to the competitors, I think. And so yeah, they became almost cheerleaders for that approach. I wish, and there were, there were other VCs who were like, look, we're not investing, and here's why, and we think you should really, really double down on driving revenue per user it's not like we were sitting there in you know, Monzo HQ and be like, revenue doesn't matter, like whatever, raise more VC money. That's absolutely not the case. We worked really, really hard on it. And I think the things they're doing now are, are um, the new lending products will drive a lot more revenue per customer. I think we executed poorly on, on revenue at times. Um, it was a focus. But what we could have done differently is, um, so what I advise finders, founders now, is like find the smartest investor who said no and try, like really internalize Try to kind of get over the emotional like reaction to them saying no, and really, really try to think through why they said no, and how they could be right, and then if you can, just try and get that critique like every six months, mm. and really, really think hard about how they might be wrong and how you might be right. You know, ten years in the future, looking back, going, you know, I, I wish I, I paid more attention to that person. Yeah, um,
0: I think that's great. I think one of the hardest, some of the best founders I've seen. They. They get feedback from lots of different sources, but they know who to listen to. And how do you think about it? Like, how do you know when to take feedback or really internalize it and not take it personally, but, like, take it for what it's worth versus when to kind of follow your gut and say, nope, this is totally wrong? Yeah.
1: Tricky, because, I mean, during fundraising, um, even if you do really well, like, 90% of VCs will tell you you're an idiot and some will do so politely and some will do so in less polite ways. And, like, the reasons they give you are just, like, Bogus sometimes. Like, re- I had a really, really bad meeting with a top, a top London VC, like well, top three, right? There's a partner there and a more junior associate. and They basically spent an hour and a half telling me that digital banks are just a waste of time. Like, no one's ever going to sign up. It's mm-hmm. just like, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what, what have you ever run? Like, in your lives, what have you ever run?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and it was just like really, really dispiriting. And they were just wrong, right? Like, yeah. it turns out people will sign up for digital banks yep. and they will put their salary in, and eventually they will make money as well. Um, but the whole point, actually, was just like, no one's going to yeah. sign up. Um, empirically untrue. Uh, so I don't know, because I think you you do have to ignore most of the no's mm-hmm. from VCs. I just don't think they, like, as useful input. So I just try and find people who have, like, actual operating experience, who've mm-hmm. actually run companies, and who I think are, like, um, try and pick the sort of, I guess, the most capable, smartest ones of those, if you can, to get to mm-hmm. get feedback from, um, I mean, there are some VCs I really, really respect. I think, for example, Tom Stafford at DST, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. never invested in, in uh, Monzo put money into Revolut, but the conversations I had with him were just like so incisive and so considered and polite, mm-hmm. but he just seemed to like, intuitively understand how the mm-hmm. whole market worked. Um, Another is uh, Mickey Malker at Ribbit, mm-hmm. just, I mean, two investors I, I would absolutely love to work with yeah. in the future. Um, I think
0: you probably know by the conversation, right? You know by like, what they're saying, the way they're saying it. Like, you can probably feel it in some ways. Yeah, but
1: you need the ones who aren't the cheerleaders, Yeah. right? Who like, they ultimately say no for whatever reason, but like the way they've got there is, you think is, maybe they're conflicted. That's the best one. They're like, yeah. I, I'd love to invest, so I can't. Um, I think Mickey also is a, an angel investor in Revolut. Um, so both of those guys were sort of conflicted out early, and may have said no anyway, um, but were very, very thoughtful. The bad side, like, there are two bad sides. One is just the cheerleader, like, everything you do, Tom, is awesome, here's more money. Like, like, the money's useful, the advice is less useful. And the other end, which is, like, total garbage. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, that sort of weird middle ground of, like, skeptical but thoughtful.
0: Okay. And now you're on the other side. So you're angel investing, you're investing through YC. Like, what kind of investor do you hope to be? What types of companies are you looking for?
1: Um, I don't know yet. I'm figuring it out. I've only been doing this six or seven months, so I am a newbie. And I think it, and the, the cliché is it takes you five or ten years to figure out if you're any good at this, okay. this stuff. Um, and it's interesting, I, my strategy for angel investing is to go broad, to mm-hmm. sort of meet a lot of companies and try and invest in basically the top 20%, which do all of them. So I've made 53 investments in the last six or seven months, relatively small check sizes. Uh, and Y Combinator is similar in approach. I mean, it doesn't take the top twenty percent. It probably takes the top. And there are tens of thousands of applications, and they'll take. I think in the last batch they took three or four hundred companies. So, um, a tiny percentage. Um, what I love about Y Combinator is they've, um, they have a lot of sort of information, both in terms of the partners and also like written material and and Startup School like videos on like how to do companies better, how to run them better, how to how to get your first customers, how to fundraise. And I think that kind of really practical uh, set of content is extremely valuable. So mm-hmm. I wrote, a, had a fundraise guide recently, which was well-received. I would, it's a long-winded answer to question. So I, with a portfolio of like 50 ancient investments and, you know, will soon be 100 and beyond, you cannot spend dozens of hours with each one. And so I hope to produce more kind of scalable content mm-hmm. to uh, distill some of the stuff I've learned and then get, sort of knowledge and wisdom from other operators to then kind of put together a handbook of like, this is how we best know at the moment in 2021, how to run an early stage company.
0: Yeah, we say that a lot of Kindred too, like founders learn from other founders at the end of the day. So having a community and enabling that community is really what you want to do. Um, Well, thank you so much for being with us here today. And the, the journey so far has been incredible. And I have no doubt that the next chapter is going to be incredible for you. Thank you so much, Tom, for being with us today and for your candor. To see more from Tom, including his famous guide for fundraising, go to tomblomfield.com. For more stories like this, go to kindredcapital.vc forward slash foundersuncut. And as always, if you're a founder and the journey is hard, you're not alone and you're not doing anything wrong. Being a founder is just hard. Even the most successful founders face moments of fear, doubt, and unbelievable difficulties that never make the headlines. Thanks for being with us today. And if Tom's story resonated with you, join us again on Founders Uncut.